what did you have for breakfast today? All right, man. Um, I had a, uh, a gourmet birch muesli uh, <laughs> from Kuyong. It was absolutely tremendous um, and uh, manufactured in the Kuyong kitchen by uh, people with uh, six-figure salaries. So. Six-figure salaries. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, absolutely tremendous. Man. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Neural Media is an effortless and affordable content production service. We help businesses save time and money by taking away the pain of producing content. If you want to grow your audience through content production, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash media. Create a quote and request a callback from me personally. If you want to learn more about the benefits of growing your audience, download our free series on how to create content at the bottom of neural.com slash media. Listeners to this podcast receive a special 10% discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON. Welcome to Uncommon, the podcast that helps you build your knowledge, skills, and mindset through interviews with unique individuals. My name is Jordan Michaelides, the CEO of Neural Media and your host. In this episode, I have for you Elliot Loney. Elliot is an actor, comedian, creator of the prestigious 9As cartoon, and the funny man of the world tour tennis scene. Elliot is undoubtedly one of the most talented comedy actors in the group of Australian internet comedians, whether it's his incredibly accurate impersonation of stars like Rafael Nadal, discovering the metro wasteland as Bear Grylls, or creating a unique world with his prestigious 9As cartoon. I'm absolutely certain that no matter what he does, Elliot will have you cackling in fits of laughter. This is a brilliant, brilliant discussion where we got in deep, I think, for one of the first times. I know he's he's spoken to Josh Wade, but I think we got in deep on some topics here, including uh, in-jokes with Neil Kolhatka, uh, getting into stripping, tennis career and finding comedy, non-comedic inspiration, principles learned from his tennis career, what the brand of Elliot Loney is and the business model, and then, of course, animation and the prestigious 9As. I think this is very enjoyable as per the last four weeks. I know we've had a lot of comedy, but I think January was, for for whatever reason, worked out to be the month of comedy and, comedy, and this is our last one. So I think if you enjoy that sort of stuff, this would be a lovely episode to start off with. Uh, if you want or have a friend that maybe enjoys this sort of stuff or likes Elliot's work, do share this with them. There's a lot of others that we've interviewed as well, including Lewis Spears, episode 101. If you enjoy this episode, you can check that out as well. Uh, if you like it, do do consider subscribing on your podcast app. Um, and if you want the show notes for any of these episodes, as I always say, just head to our index and that's at neural.com slash podcast. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash podcast. Uh, but look, as I say each week, thank you so much for listening, our regulars for coming back, our newbies for giving us a shot. I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Elliot Loney. And we're live. Shit, I wasn't ready. We <laughs> <laughs> start again. <laughs> Loney, how are you, mate? Yeah, good, brother. Good. Mate, it's good to see you again. You I know? know. It's been um, 
It's been a very, very long time. Ages. I was uh, harassing you for a while, as I do most guests. I think like the average time to get a guest in is six months, typically. Some people like answer straight away, but yeah, sorry, know. mate, I'm I'm a shocking bloke. I guess what can you say? <laughs> now I thought about what what's a good icebreaker, and we've had a good chat beforehand about the old days of high school. But um, I was instructed to say this in a Swedish accent, but my Swedish accent isn't great unless I'm saying Swedish words. I know what this is. Did Lewis put you up to this? <laughs> Wasn't Lewis? I'll, I'll leave it was guess. Neil. <laughs> but the quote is, "You don't even know me." <laughs> Okay, okay. I what, mean, what, oh. what is this? And give us the... Oh, look, look, man. This is... Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if I could actually say this on the podcast forum. This is really crook stuff. Um, <laughs> you can swear, but if, no. if you don't want to say oh, it, it's fine. No, Neil's just stitched me up an absolute beauty. But uh, you'll have to ask Neil for that one. He actually tells the story a lot better than I do, believe it or not. Does but, he? Uh, it involves two Swedish backpackers when we were uh, filming Head Above Water. Um, ah. uh, that, that movie on uh, on Stan, uh, I think it was on Nine as well. But uh, Connor yeah. Fairclough, Connor Fairclough, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. because yeah, I thought cause someone else said something on Facebook, uh, something about when are you making a comeback to the Ritz, and I thought maybe they're related because <laughs> the Ritz is like a backpackers in Melbourne. Is that is that what it's related to? No, no. I actually used to just head out a lot, um, probably in like 2013, I, and I, at the Ritz was probably my favourite place to go. Okay. And I used to love generating there, and um, yeah, had a, a lot of really loose nights there. And um, I'd recently come out of a relationship at the time, so yeah, um, I was just going ballistic. And there was a bloke that uh, I used to bump into there frequently, and. Um, <laughs> His name was Abishek. <laughs> and uh, Abish, uh, I think he just, for, for a long time, I don't know why, he, he just wants me to go back to the Ritz. And I'm not even sure if the Ritz is still there. So, wow. um, he may be clutching at straws there, but, you know. That's it, so funny, man. Yeah. Are you single now? I am, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, on the point of that time you came out of a relationship, one of the most interesting stories I've heard about you was the stripping. And yeah. this was uncovered on the Josh Wade <laughs> podcast. So, I mean, you've had a bunch of different jobs. We'll get into the tennis later. But I'm just yeah. curious, this came about through a friend. Yeah. What What did you learn about life stripping? Oh, man, that's a great question. So, uh, yeah, before I get into what I learned, I should probably tell you just how I got into the industry because that's a pretty lucrative industry, I suppose. <laughs> um, so, one of my good mates, uh, Josh Fu. Um, who's now a uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu master. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, Do you know he, where his gym is? I don't actually know. I've, I've lost a bit of contact with him. Wow, he's actually okay. uh, got a wife and a couple of kids now. Wow. Um, so he's doing really well. But uh, yeah, he was uh, in tremendous shape and I'd recently um, stopped sort of playing tennis pretty seriously and I was in pretty good shape back then and he said look um if you're looking for a job which i was he's like you should do some topless waitering you know the money's really good it's a great industry so wow. i thought i'll give it a go uh, so I got into some topless waitering, uh, obviously really enjoyed it because the money's great and you don't have to do much. You just stand there basically. And then um, I decided I wanted to make some more money and have some more fun. So I got a bit of a routine together and uh, <laughs> joined up with a crazy group called Hunk Mania, which are a whole bunch of hyped up Jewish blokes. And uh, Wow. <laughs> yeah, Hunk, just, Mania. Hunk Mania. Do you think it still exists? I'm pretty sure it still does. But I'm, I think they've, they're going to a different name. And I'm pretty sure the guy who ran it, Darren Sutton, is in Vegas now doing a show on in, in Vegas. Permanent residency at one of the casinos there, I believe. Wow. Yeah. Because I, I remember... Recently, Lauren's parents have just moved to Mornington and we were driving down. We went through via Brighton because we uh, were dropping, dropping off some uh, panettone to 
Ben Carrington and his his partner. Panettone, very she, nice. She loves uh, loves her Panettone, and we went through Brighton, went through Moorabbin area, and we drove past just onto the, I don't know what it's called, the M11, whatever the Peninsula Link is, but there's like a, it, it's got a really famous name, like not Boys to Men, or it's got some sort of manpower. manpower. That's it. <laughs> yeah. It's Boys like a classic, <laughs> classic like uh, you know women's night yeah. sort of thing, and I, I think it's like every Thursday. I don't know what the venue was, one of yep. those like highway venues, but. It just reminded me of you. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, it's unfortunate. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people have said that every time they see a Mauer review show, they, they think of me, which is, I'm not sure if that's unsettling or a good thing. No, but, I think it's good. Um, like, I think in this day and age, people don't really care about that stuff. But uh, in terms of what I learned from it, it's, it's incredibly liberating, man, as you can see. Uh, as you can probably imagine. <laughs> Getting a Tiny Pin Johnson out on stage, mate, I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> it's no, but the thing is, man, like... Uh, for me, um, you know, I was looking for something different to do and uh, it definitely um, helped me come out of my shell and um, I'd recently come out of a relationship and, um, you know, I was a little bit heartbroken at the time so it was the best way for me to move on and find myself a little bit and, and learn what I like, what I don't like and um, it taught me a lot about how to be a performer because I actually spent a lot more time as the MC of the show than I did an actual stripper. Really? So that's how I got into um, more performing and um, it was a really great head start for me in terms of stand-up because I had a lot of stage time before I actually took to the stage. Well, that's what I was thinking about. Like, where did you develop this presence on stage and, and I, I it just made me think about that because you'd never really delved into what specifically you were doing but it would make so much sense i mean if you're getting nude on stage then you've <laughs> well, got it wasn't really nude actually well was it? Was it? near the, nude the on stage <laughs> but you got you, a tiny pin mate you can't yeah, see it you've you, you've got to have some confidence yeah. you've got to build some confidence absolutely and i think um obviously that would have done that for you well that was a thing as well like uh typically um throughout my life up until this point um i'm one of those people that's probably a little bit mentally disturbed as i like <laughs> pushing myself out of my comfort zone because i feel like that's where you learn and you grow so um you know the idea of actually doing that horrified me like the idea of stripping it's terrifying mm. but um what i actually got out of it um far outweighed my my fears you know like it it, it changes you it 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 teaches you things that you can't learn from books you know and mm. that's um one of the reasons why it was so enriching for me man like it was i know it sounds corny and stuff because i'm talking mm. about being a mouse stripper <laughs> but like it's genuinely true. it set me up you know it really set me up for a whole bunch of other things as well because um it, it gave me a little bit uh, a less uh, i became more fearless i think yeah. from doing that well it sort of gives you a story a story other than hey oh, I, yeah. i'm a guy like i've done this interesting thing this yeah. this sort of confident shaking thing and that's what I got from it. And when I was thinking about what could, you know, everything we do, I feel makes a portion of us for a certain period of time. And that sort of experience would definitely add to your experience in life and, and skills in a way. Yeah, absolutely, man. And um, more, more so um, because, as I said earlier, I, you know, I came out of a relationship. So, it was the best way for me to move on as well. Um mm. Because, uh, you know, I was in a venue with 400 women every Saturday night and I was one of eight guys. So, yeah, you know, it's, nuts. it's <laughs> you know, it was a bit like that. But, um, yeah, as I said, spent a lot more time um, emceeing, which was great for me, um, making that transition into stand-up comedy because, um, you know, a lot of guys who start in stand-up are very green because I haven't had that stage time. Whereas, you know, um, a show, a stage show for a, a strip agency normally runs for about two hours. So, um, typically I'd have about 45 minutes on stage every Saturday night and that really helped me right. um, get comfortable up there. 
you mentioned something before about your comedy career and and, and all that sort of stuff. And I, when I was thinking about, you know, what is your earliest memory of being funny? My own earliest memory of you being funny was the prank calls at high school, <laughs> yeah. which I, I like to replicate in my own way. Um, you know, sorry to all those people who are prank called, but what's sort of the earliest memory you have of being funny? Oh, man. Like, honestly, I think it was... Uh going back to I've always had like a knack for voices and impersonations and stuff like for sure like for as long as I can remember man like I, before I started impersonating celebrities and stuff like that like I was always impersonating um, like friends and teachers and family members and stuff like that I think I remember probably like um, in year like four or five, like um, when the teacher would leave the room, like I would pretend to be the teacher and I would like stand up there and like impersonate the teacher and stuff. I think I probably got caught a couple of times and stuff like that, but that I would just, I'd get off on that kind of stuff, you know, like I used to love um, evoking that laughter and I did not care like how I would do that. Like I was uh, absolute hellraiser in high school, man. Like I was yeah. just outrageous. I remember I was the same, like I just loved getting that, that feeling and I've always wondered why that is. I think maybe it's just because I'm a bit more extroverted. And yeah. so, therefore, you're sort of, you're more willing or or more wanting to please the crowd, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, man. Do you um, find that you've always had that? I think, uh, yeah, I think I've probably changed over the years and stuff like that. As I said a little bit earlier, like I kind of, um, you know, would do anything for that laugh and would just get up in front of the class and just do anything I could. But um, these days, because I'm sort of doing it as a job, I'm a little bit more... Um, I like to sort of be myself a little bit more off behind the scenes, if that makes sense. So, mm. like, um, if I'm not performing, I like to sort of just be Elliot. Yeah. But it's hard to find the line sometimes. <laughs> like, I'm very confused because I've got so many different personas, man. I feel like I'm going to have a mental breakdown well, in a few years, mate. It's probably not I, far away. <laughs> yeah, do it like, like Heath Ledger where yeah. the persona starts <laughs> to take over. I've always thought about that. I, I yeah. want to get into who who is sort of the persona that you, you seem most alike with. But I, I'm curious as to, as you were growing up, you know, I, you don't get to hear much about your parents and I'm curious as to, like, is there a particular principle or, or lesson or story that you hold with you today from either of your parents and maybe they just said it to you or maybe you just saw it indirectly, like yeah. your, your parents' hard, hard work or something um, like that? Yeah, man, like, uh, that's, a, that's a really good question, man. That's a brilliant <laughs> question. Good good question, Jordan. Uh, uh, so, uh, my, well, my, thank you. <laughs> my, my mum is actually, she's uh, more of the performer. She, um, she's she been a ballet dancer in her life and did ballet dance and she does like yoga. She's very healthy and like uh, zen, I guess you could say. Um, my dad is um, like uh, the intelligent side of the family, like the very like strict, like lawyer sort of. Um, but, um, you know, he's always had a pretty good sense of humor as well and loves to have a laugh and he's a bit of a larrikin himself. So, um, yeah, that, that's sort of um, uh, my parents in a nutshell, but I'm not really too sure if there's anything that I've really picked up that really resonated apart from the fact that, um, you know, I look at my old man, he's a big inspiration for me and, like, everyone loves him, you know, he's the kind of guy that, like, um, you know, just lights up a room and everyone gets around him and I just kind of like that about my dad. Like, he's just a really good, genuine bloke and that's mm. probably what I try and do the most. Like, I'm try I try to stay genuine. That's good. So, I like um, that. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of one of those things where you always have a certain family member that you you try to model yourself on in some way and maybe yeah. you don't realize it. And um, yeah, I find that you try and exuberate what character you like about them. Absolutely. Sort of by mimicking. Yeah, 100%. You know? And because you like impersonating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Therefore, yeah. it's sort of, it's similar in that way. But that's yeah. that's what I feel. At least. I don't think my dad likes it when I'm impersonating him. <laughs> but, uh, what, what, did, what does he, what impersonation does he hate the most? 
oh, I don't know if he hates any of them. Uh, well, he hasn't said that to my face anyway. He probably hates them all, but... Well, I impersonate um, my dad. My dad has this thing where he's like, don't swear. <laughs> and he says it literally like Just that. Just like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, I try, he, he's sort of morphed into this sort of Scooby-Doo type oh, yeah, character tough. in a way. Tough. Um, but yeah, he's he's terrible. That, but I think what it does is it just shows them sometimes how ridiculous it is what they're saying when you're sort of mimicking and stuff 100%. like that. 100%. Yeah, I feel like everyone uh, gets a little bit more senile in their old age. Don't they? <laughs> they get a little bit more intolerable and stuff like that. It's quite it's quite interesting watching them um, change. I'm sure they probably feel the same way watching us develop and change ourselves. But um, that's something I've definitely observed over the years. Yeah. Now, you, I was looking back at some things in, uh, I think you had your first gig at the SP, that is. Uh, obviously, you're doing the stripping. You were pretty intense there with tennis for, for quite a while and still are in a way now. I know that you broke your shoulder or collarbone and that was sort of what pushed you to do man versus metro. Yeah. Or man, the... the um, when it was Bear grills in the camping store. That's I right. Think. That was the first one. Yeah, that's it. Now, like, wh- what sort of what was the ca- what do you think was the catalyst that pushed you towards this? Yeah, you're definitely on the money there. It was um, I dislocated my shoulder on the way to a party um, when I was about 21, um, and at that point I was um, really considering getting back into tennis. I was hitting a really good ball. I was um, hitting a lot with Marvin Barker, who I don't know if you know Marvin, yeah. but Marvin was professional at the time, making his way up the ranks. I think he was about 600 at the time, and we were having pretty competitive sets, and I thought to myself, gee, you know, if he's doing that well and I'm playing this well, maybe it's time for me to think about getting back into the sport. And then, um, you know, I was really fit, really strong at that point in time as well. And then, yeah, I came off the board, dislocated my shoulder. It was a bad dislocation too because most shoulders pop out forwards. Mine popped out backwards. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was a bad one. And then um, ended up going to the uh, hospital and uh, it was out for like... I was out for too long, like 45 minutes or so, which is like typically too long. And so that's why the recovery took like at least a year and a half um, till really? it was right again. Yeah. It was, so, so how long normally does it take people to put the shoulder uh, back in? It's it's um, it's tough to predict that because it, it depends on the dislocation and uh, from, from what I've been told anyway. And it also depends on whether or not they get surgery, like a reconstruction or some sort of minor shoulder surgery. But I was very much considering getting a reco, but I actually opted out of it and decided to do the long, slow burn of uh, rehab, which um, turned out to be a really good decision in the long term. Why is that? Uh, just because um, a lot of people go for the reco. Like one of my uh, one of my mates has had like four or five reconstructions, and wow. um, yeah, sometimes it just it can go badly. You know, like any sur- surgery, um, it's complicated, and a, sh- a shoulder, especially and knees. A, a, those types of surgeries where there's a lot of things that can go wrong. It's a very intricate sort of a surgery. Um, and so uh, I was very keen to get it done at the time. But, yeah, looking back on it now, I was really diligent with my rehab. I did everything by the book. And um, even though it seemed like it would never get better, like one day I just woke up and I was like, hey, it's fine. Like, yeah. It's pretty much 100% now. And so. you were still playing tennis then, right? Um, right up until that point, yeah. But okay. um, I'd taken some time off and then I just got back into it and I was going to put all my eggs in the basket again and give it a red hot crack and then that happened. So that how, was, how that do was you it. view that sort of sliding doors moment then versus now? Like were you just dis- absolutely destroyed? Man, like I was like, 
I was a mess, man. Like looking back on it, it's kind of comical, like how depressed I got. Like, really? Oh man, it was like it was an absolute disgrace. Like I was like <laughs> sitting in my room, just like screaming and shit. Like it was so bad, man. Like I honestly like. Did you think your life was over? Pretty much, man. Like I know that sounds ridiculous, but like for me, you know, considering it's my right shoulder, I'm right hand dominant, and all that kind of stuff. Like I literally did not know what I was gonna do. Like because my whole life up until that point had been tennis, man. Like my whole life, like yeah. I didn't know what else I was gonna do. I'm like, what am I gonna do? Like it was, it was such a confronting moment for me. And um, luckily, uh, as you said, uh, I, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. And then I found comedy again in that. So um, why, why write that Bear grill skit? Man, I was seriously just looking for something to do. Hey, like I was doing, um, I started doing prank calls um, for my mates on Facebook, but probably more That's so right. to make myself feel better because I was so down in the dumps all the time. And like, <laughs> you know, I've always liked making people laugh and shit. And I would do like, uh, you know, these Japanese uh, <laughs> prank calls and the Rafa ones and Bear and Morgan Freeman and all that kind of stuff. And then um, they started getting a little bit of notoriety between um, just my friends and my immediate friendship circle on Facebook. And one of my mates from high school uh, reached out to me, Max Price, and was like, hey, man, like, um, uh, you know, these prank calls are absolutely hilarious. Would you consider doing something a bit of high quality, like I could help there in that regard? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And so we went and shot Bear Grylls and Camping Store. Um, <laughs> Dude, I, I gen... Okay, I'll let you continue, but... Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so we went and shot uh, Bear Grylls and Camping Store, and then... Um, it did nothing. Like it sat on YouTube with like 200 views for quite some time. And then like maybe five months later while my mate was overseas, like I just like went to check on it because I was like, I wonder what happened to that video because it wasn't on my channel. I don't think it was on his. So I went to check on it and uh, it had gone nuts. It had like 50,000 views or something like from like 200 to 50,000. And I remember like messaging him like over, I couldn't believe it. I was like, man, like it's had like 50,000 views, man. And, and this was like 2009, 10? I want to say 12 or 11. Oh, really? Yeah, I reckon around then, 12. See, even then, 50,000 views back then is a lot. Yeah, 100%, man. And, like, obviously, um, you know, considering we didn't have any subscribers and I I was completely unknown at that point, like, I didn't even have my own database or, like, Facebook page or Instagram or Twitter, nothing. Um, So, for me, that was huge. And then um, I said to him, hey, man, like, I've got this idea called Man vs. Metro. I think we should do it. And then, like, I wrote the script for Man vs. Metro. And then, like, he came back and we shot it and then went to bed, man. And then, like, the next day I woke up and, like, I remember going to YouTube and it was, like, the featured video on YouTube. So, like, I thought there was, like, a glitch. Yeah, man. I, like, went to the computer and I kept, like, refreshing it. And it was just, like, Man vs. Metro. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Like, it was, like, so early in the morning. And I was, like, refreshing it. And I just couldn't get my head around it. Like... It had Dude, like 150,000 views in like 24 hours or something. Hit really? Reddit front page. Yeah, it just went berserk. When I saw that, I, I thought, wow, this is like beyond exceptional. Like I thought, is this like the next sort of Eric Banner? You know, <laughs> oh, like how he right. used to do, um, what was that TV show? Uh, Full Frontal or Fast Forward or Yeah, like the characters he used yeah. to embody. Mm. Um, and I just remember thinking, wow, this is like really, really good. I think that was... I saw the camping one. I know. I remember seeing the the prank calls yeah. that you did. But for some reason, it sort of went away and this came out. And I was like, this has to be a series. Yeah. This has to be <laughs> like something that comes out like on a regular basis. I, w- I would watch a TV. Like I could just see it as part of Full Frontal, you know? Yeah, man. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things uh, looking back on it is, um, you know, back then, in particular because social media was quite a new thing, especially like YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. I don't think even Instagram was very prominent back then. Um, 
there was no one really guiding us. And looking back on it, I think if we had better guidance and um, we were able to um, like navigate that um, initial feedback that we got and, and use that and cultivate that and, and figure out a way to make that commercial, then I think we would have done a lot better than yeah. them. But, you know, that's just, you can't change that. You learn but from those things. It's a different things, era as yeah, well. You know, like we're talking seven years later yeah. now, more potentially. Yeah. I could see it definitely having like a sponsored by, you know, fucking whatever. So, yeah, that's the thing. I feel like that wasn't even... NordVPN or something. Yeah, like. man. Yeah, but, even like, yeah. But that was just not a thing back then. No, there, no. You did not... This is the thing that people don't realize is you didn't make money on YouTube back then. Nah, it wasn't really a thing. Um, uh, but uh, I feel like yeah, in, in some ways, you know, it's harder to make money on YouTube now because they're so um, anal about everything. I mean... I know, with the monetize, the demonetization yeah, the and all that, it's really tough. If you say... Anything that could be deemed offensive, mm. particular and including swear words, then you're screwed. Yeah, I would, I would imagine. Do do? I would imagine that it's really hurt guys like Lewis and Shooter and Frenchie and stuff who, you know, obviously swear in their comedy and stuff. Like I, even I do from time mm. to time. So, um, yeah, it's definitely hurt the whole community as a whole. I reckon. Yeah, I definitely think it has. But I, I, I wonder whether doing that has meant that those people have had to become better business people and find better revenue sources. Yeah, absolutely. Like you would know that yourself. You've had to find many different ways of making money from this For thing. Sure. Um, you know, I remember Neil, Lewis, everyone has spoken about having a part-time job while doing this stuff at the same time. Yeah. It's just what you got to do. For sure. For um, sure. Now, you've done many characters. You've obviously got Bear Grylls, Rafa, Dave Hughes, Morgan Freeman, Tony, like it just goes on and on and on. Bruce McAvaney, of course, is always <laughs> a good one. I, I just, it got me thinking about outside influence and ideas. Like where do these ideas come from some more well more yeah thanks man well. i just had like one single drop i don't know if our, if our listeners uh could they obviously can't, couldn't see what just happened but uh gee whiz it was that was really dire that was really dire you, you do drink a lot of water though do you uh, i just needed my vitamins and my protein uh, so, so barren out here just trying to get a little bit of water survive uh, i've got one droplet here that lasts me about three days about to go on a podcast expedition out here it's so bad Sorry, you can just take you can take a piss into the uh into the water I'm glass piss and into this microphone it. I get another droplet like that, and a pure <laughs> frustration. <isn't it? laughs> now, the the ideas and the influence you you seem to take elements of of many parts of life, but I'm just curious as to where your non comedic inspiration comes from. Like, wh what's your recommended look like on YouTube? Oh man, that's a great question. I, like, honestly, like I, I don't know. Like, um, I probably honestly typically don't watch too much of it myself but um you know i keep an eye on like what everyone else is doing in my field like obviously you know your isaac butterfields your your neils your frenchies your lewises your shooters you know these guys who i know pretty well um and uh yeah like i like to keep tabs on what everyone's doing just i'm sure everyone else does that as well but um i actually don't watch that much comedy um really yeah not really that that uh, into um watching it um, and absorbing it like I, I've watched like random stuff like real weird shit like I'm really into like space and like out of space and all That's that cool. kind of stuff yeah like I just look at like real um, bizarre stuff that you just typically probably wouldn't um, you know imagine they're looking and you know the, the usual stuff like footy stuff like I'm a swan supporter and you know like tennis stuff like I love like keeping on tabs of results and watching like matches and highlights and all that kind of stuff yeah 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 my, my recommended is uh, I've actually haven't looked at it I mean, I'm I'm obsessed with YouTube in terms yeah. of it's the only I've pretty much deleted all social media, but and Joe Instagram. Rogan. I, I watch a lot Joe of Joe Rogan. Rogan. Yeah, like yeah, Joe Rogan, 
people doing critiques of other YouTubers, <laughs> some sort of political thing, Sargon yeah. of a card. Uh, you know, you click one thing though. This is the problem is you click one thing and then all of a sudden you get an insane amount of videos recommended. Yeah, 100%. It's like, uh, you know, SJW outraged type video. You click on that, you watch it, you get bored after two minutes. It's like a 20-minute video. Yeah. And then all of a sudden your entire feed is populated with that yeah. shit. Yeah, <laughs> no, nah, it's true, man. You, should, you know what you should uh, check up as well? Like something I've actually failed to mention before is uh, I, I watch like a lot of top 10 videos. It's really interesting. You watch like top, top 10. 10 of- it could be anything, you know what I mean? Like top 10 really? like, worst things that's happened in North Korea. Like it could be like really bizarre, but like you just learn random little things and um, – yeah, like I like to watch that stuff because I feel like it's qu- pretty informative, but it's you don't you don't waste much time. It's like pretty to the point. It's like this, this. You're like, wow, wow, wow. You're just digesting facts. Interesting. I was yeah. looking at uh, top ten viral videos last night. Yep. That came up. <laughs> yeah, very much. Now, the topics that you like to cover is: that, do you have a preference? Like, there's a lot of people there to do with sport, mm. um, and a few sort of, you know, general political cultural characters like Conum and uh, Tony Abbott or. Yep you know, Bear grills. where does the cat, like, who do you like to gravitate towards? Um, yeah, like there's, I wouldn't say that I have a favorite impersonation that I like to do. And in terms of my sketches and my skits, uh, there's no real formula. Um, I'm actually searching for something that I can do on a more regular basis. Um, like, you know, I think Lewis has done really well this year by creating like Lou Review and uh, Bi Monthly yeah. Bull and these um, satirical sort of um, news shows that he uses that he can just take the news and create a new video every week. It's enabled him to like be really consistent and like forthright with his um, material. Whereas um, I'm a little bit like um, more all over the shop, which is why I said, you know, I'm looking for something more um, permanent to do because I just think of something and I go, oh, that could be funny. And then I just shoot it. You know, yeah. There's nothing more to it really. Yeah. So, you, it just sort of comes into your mind yeah. naturally. Yeah. I think of something crook and I'm like, gee, that's weird. I'll, I'll, I might do that. <laughs> <laughs> now, tennis, you were a rising star as a teen. I remember uh, you left BGS. You were pretty... People were disappointed that you left because you were like our great white hope when it came to tennis <laughs> at BGS. Um, and like, I know that you didn't make it prof- professionally in, you know, the, the tour or whatever, but you still had a pretty interesting career absolutely yeah, um, yeah. and i'm curious as to sort of what are the skills or principles that you've taken with you now today that you learned from that time well man one of the things i reckon is like tennis is quite um similar to comedy in a way uh really? it, well it, it's sort of like it's just you're on your own man and like it, it, there's no one else out there with you on the court you know what i mean like you've got to think huh. your way through it you got to you know if it's if it's like you have a bad loss you've got to deal with it you have a good win like you ride that high you know and with comedy, I've found that there's actually a lot of similarities between tennis and, and comedy because, you know, the same thing with comedy, man. Like, you take a loss, you take it hard, you, yeah. you have a good win, you feel amazing. Like, um, and it's just you. Like, there's no one else out there, man. It's just it's just you. Yeah. So, that's like one of the things that, I, I don't know, uh, I've just kind of drawn that parallel there and I've come to realize that, yeah, tennis and comedy, uh, I know that sounds weird, probably something that you wouldn't marry up, but for me, yeah, they're... They're pretty similar. What, what did you love about tennis? Like, why tennis and not swimming or oh, football? Man, like, or? I don't know why it was um, off the top of my head, but I just remember I was 11. So, I was, I was like, pretty late to start playing tennis. You know, typically a lot of these guys who play at high levels, you know, they start, like, super early on. Um, typically, you know, like, two, four, you know, like, super young. And um, 
I was just in Sports Mart in Moravant with my old man. And uh, <laughs> I was like I this, was man, I was like the biggest gimp ever. Like, all I did was just play like Super Nintendo and shit. I was like this absolute gimp. And my dad probably took me there to get me out of the house. And um, I remember uh, I tried a whole bunch of sports up until that point And I just sucked at everything and just thought sports is not for me. And I saw like a tennis racket on the wall. And for some reason, I don't know why, but I was just compelled to get that racket. And I said to dad, I'm like, dad, can you get me that racket? And he's like, oh, get out of it, son. You're going to play tennis, <laughs> <laughs> you don't play sport. <laughs> and I was like, no, nah, no, nah, mate, let's just get it. Anyway, so he ended up uh, buying me this cheap like $50 racket and then we went down to Moorabbin Indoor Tennis Centre and I had my first hit. And I reckon from that moment that I had my first hit, I don't reckon I missed a single day of tennis for like at least three years in a row. What do you mean? So you you hit the ball every single every day? Every single day from the moment I picked up that racket for at least three or four years until there was like a hailstorm and I physically couldn't go out and what, play. What did your parents think? Were they amazed? They were shocked, yeah, because up until that point, I'd never shown any application to anything apart from video games and shit. Like I was this little gimp and then like that changed my life, man. Like that honestly like gave me like access to so many more things because- after I realized that I loved tennis so much and saw such an improvement in something that I loved doing, I also then realized that like I enjoy other sports as well, but I just never really thought that I was any good. So like I'd be very quick to give it up. Um, it changed your mindset. It changed my mindset completely, yeah. man. And I wonder like, you know, um, where I'd be had I not picked up that racket, man. Like that was honestly the best thing that I've ever done in my life. Really? Yeah. So, that's the most pivotal moment in your life. You I think? reckon, man, for sure. I know that might sound ridiculous to some people listening, but like if you think about like where I came from and like what I was doing before that and like how nerdy I was and like how I had like I had no interest in anything other than video games, like, you know, it, it gave me like a whole new lease on life. Like not only did I like enjoy sport after that and stuff like that, but I became like really health conscious and like into my fitness and like staying on top of things and like... Um, you know, I realized the benefits of hard work and discipline and stuff. And I had none of that before that. So right. it, it like, it like instilled in me, like all these crazy things. Interesting. And yeah. you're able to apply that throughout your life. Yeah. You've had a pretty special friendship, I'd say with both, uh, the cock and, mm. uh, and Kyrgios. Mm. Uh, how did that come about? Um, well, I suppose like being in the tennis circles, like you, everyone sort of knows everyone. And I know for uh, Thanasi and both Nick had watched my videos from pretty early on because I did a lot of tennis videos and stuff and it like circulated within the tennis community uh, before they were like big name uh, tennis players. And um, I think with Thanasi, I met him a few years ago um, just through like tennis friends, tennis circles. And then like I thought this bloke's an absolute cracker and uh, <laughs> he probably thought the same thing. And then we just got on like a house on fire, man. And like... We just became really close and um, we just had a lot of things in common and uh, we just became really good mates. And um, yeah, like I think he's just a great bloke. And then, um, you know, I, I already knew a lot of the players anyway. So, um, I've just become very integrated in the tennis community because <laughs> that's where I feel at home as well, you know. Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, they've, they've risen up in the, I don't know what you call it, in the stakes of that world, but the three of you guys and a few others still manage to hang around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like this little crew, I see the stories every now and then. <laughs> it's pretty funny, man. Like, I, I literally live my tennis career vicariously through, like, Kyrgios and Thanasi and Jordan Thompson, Alex Bowl, all these guys, you know, like, they're just great blokes who I get along really well with. And, um, yeah, like, being around them, you know, I, I think 
honestly i can i can say without question like the the happiest i am is when i'm like around um those guys and and immersed in in tennis because it, you know it brings me back to my childhood and yeah. um i love the sport so much and i like i get along so well with those guys and i genuinely want to see them succeed and do well so like it's great for me to support them cheer them on and then also you know coming into the australian open in january i love do, doing gags and dressing <laughs> up as rafa and doing novak and Eddie murray and all those ridiculous voices and um one of the questions we had was around what is Kyrgios, and I think uh, both of them actually. What what are they like behind closed doors? Because you know people don't really get to see what these sort of people are like. Yeah, I think um, I've always um, like had crazy respect and admiration for for any tennis player, um, and particularly those guys because you know we become close mates and stuff, but. Um, the the level of sacrifice that they actually um, they need to to play at that level, I don't think the um, Australian public really well the the general um, Australian public don't really understand the the level of commitment that is required to play professional tennis at that top level, mm. because tennis is something in Australia where it's like talked about and celebrated for two weeks during the Australian Open and then it's and just, then people are just like it's gone it's football like, no, now yeah no one cares, um, you know and it's been a long time since we've had an Australian tennis player really making noise overseas like a Leighton Hewitt actually winning Grand Slams or a Pat Rafter, you know what I mean? Like the last time someone really made waves is probably when Nick Kyrgios made the quarterfinals at Wimbledon, you know, as an 18-year-old beating Rafa. So um, it's just typically something that I think people um, don't really understand. Um, and so because I, I I see the application and I understand um, how draining and how difficult it is for these guys, like I really empathise with them and, um, you know, that's something that I think um, we just bond on on that personal level because I, I can fully um, understand where they're coming from. Yeah, it's one of the strangest sports in that regards, isn't it? Because the the thing about Australians that our American audience may not know, but they may have learned from listening to previous episodes, is how obsessed we are with sport. Yeah. Like sport is like, yeah. like I think Titus O'Reilly said it in his episode. If you don't have a team here in, say, Melbourne, mm. or if you don't say that you support a team, it's like being in Texas and saying you're not Christian. <laughs> 100%, man. Um, so, it's so weird. So, it? so people will, like, are more likely to jump on a bandwagon yeah, and jump on a sport. 100%. Yeah. And so tennis is one of those weird things because you don't see... It's not like, you know, with AFL, soccer, whatever, you have open training and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. With tennis, it's just a guy hitting a ball, a guy or girl hitting a ball on a court quick snapshot and that's it you don't yeah. see everything else where it's yeah. the gym the early wake-ups oh, the diet and the other thing i think is that isn't taken into account with with the australian tennis players in particular is um like how much time they spend away from home because you know where you look at australia is geographically you know what i mean like if you're a european player or an american player yeah it's quite easy to zip back home and stuff like that but australia is quite isolated so when they're spending all that time overseas you know they don't get to see their family for months and months and months and that takes so, a so they're continually so they would just go let's say um what what is the the tour what is the tour go to from from here, it goes towards the east, yeah? Well, it depends. There's challenger tournaments sort of all over the place with futures and stuff like that. It depends on what level, but um, typically you've got like, you know, the Australian Open, the French Open, US Open and Wimbledon. Um, yeah. So, well, I think it yeah, it might be in that Australian, order. French. I think, it, I think it goes Australian, French, Wimbledon, US. Okay. So, there's the Australian, then there must be like a, a bit of a break. Yeah. So, they have a little bit of a break, but it's tough. Like... 
with tennis, it's one of those sports where it's difficult to have a break unless you're, you're exceptional. Like I know that Nick in his off-season likes to not look at a tennis ball, whereas a lot of players will still put a lot of work in the off-season and, and um, really work hard because tennis is one of those sports where um, most players, um, if they're not playing consistently and hitting a lot of balls like all the time, even if it's just like a couple of hours a day, um, you, you can lose like the um the, the ball striking a little bit you yeah know what the I mean? dexterity yeah it's like you know with footy it's like a different sport like afl i would say you can take some time off and then you can come back without much of a trouble you know you might have a little bit of a rust but it doesn't take too long to get the cobwebs out whereas because tennis it requires so many fine motor skills it's actually quite hard to to um pick it back up if you've had some time off you had a bit of a layoff right and what's the off season when is the off-season? Around now? Uh, yeah, around now. Um, I suppose it depends on, on most players' schedules and, and, and um, their workload and, and their ranking and, and, you know, what's required for them to get to the top 100 and stuff like that. But, um, you know, it, it varies for every single player. It, it, it definitely um, differentiates from guy to guy. Um, as I said earlier, like I know Nick likes to take time off in his off-season and like um, for him because, you know, he doesn't um, maybe – love tennis as much as someone like you know Roger Federer and Nadal and stuff and and sometimes he likes to I think he feels as if he plays his best tennis when he has a little bit of time away and he's able to like recalibrate recuperate and then once he's had some time with his friends and his family and he's had some some good times he can get back on the court and actually dial in and focus where you've got other guys who are like you know Alex Demonar for example who just absolutely love the game man like yeah would eat a tennis ball and like train like (laughs) seven hours a day like with Leighton just staring on you know like it just depends um, the, yeah, the, back to the, the, the schedule. So, obviously, we had the Hopman Cup. Mm. Uh, there's the Brisbane International. There's a few in Auckland, Sydney International. Auckland, Sydney, yeah. Australian Open, yep. obviously, as well. Uh, th- that was it. Davis Cup. Yeah. So, w- how many countries are in that? In the Davis Cup? Yeah. Oh, man, I'm not 100% sure off the top of my head. Um, heaps. Um, it depends. It, like, you know... It, it, because you've got to get into world group to compete and there's a lot of countries that actually miss out on getting into the world group. Um, so, yeah, there's like most countries can have a Davis Cup team. It's whether or not they have the, the players and the firepower to actually get into the world group and actually compete for Davis Cup ties. Right. Yeah. There's Rotterdam Open, Rio Open, Dubai. God, there's so much, man. There's man. something on pretty much... There's a, I'm just looking on Wikipedia. It's got the major tournaments yeah. in green. The Barcelona... Open, yeah. So it goes like futures, ATP. Uh, so futures, um, challenges, ATP, two fifty, five hundred, one thousand, and Grand Slam, and that's like the 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 levels. That's the levels. And yeah. then the level below below that, um, in Australia, they have like AMT tournaments, and there's like different tournaments as well, like money tournaments where you can play like platinum, AMT, gold, silver, bronze. You know, all those kind of tournaments as well. Wow. Um, yeah, there's a lot here, man. Yeah, there's it's a so- crazy hierarchy and, um, you know, it's one of those sports like um, like I've played a lot of sports now and, um, you know, like personally, I can say without question, man, like it's like the toughest sport to make it in. Like it is it's incredible like how hard it is and like how like i know golf is incredibly difficult as well and people argue about that but that doesn't have the physicality that tennis has you know what i mean like where you've got to be like not only like mentally sharp for across five sets of tennis but you've got to be like so physical and so fit and so strong like it's just man it requires so much of you like it's so draining i can imagine and that sustained mental concentration too like over five sets you know like 
a match in, match out. Like, you know, it's very tough. Going back to what we were talking about earlier with, with the effect that tennis has had on, on your comedy and the impersonations and all that, it's made me wonder about are you a comedian or are you an actor? But before we get into that real question, why don't you tell us about the story of your first time bombing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. So, uh, it's a crazy wake-up call um, because I remember the first gig I ever did in stand-up was actually... Um, I, uh, it was like a little bar um, and me and my mate did it and uh, it was mostly just for friends and um, you know that gives you a, like a warped distortion of how good you are because your friends no. are so supportive so like every joke you say they like clap and cheer and they're like yeah man that was sick and they like, get around you um, and then I did a few other gigs and I realized the reception wasn't always that good um, depending on where you are and, and the location and the setting because uh, I don't know if you've, you've heard I'm sure that a lot of people have um, um, you know heard secondhand from other people and their experiences but open mic nights are definitely not glamorous man. they're rough they're rough yeah. and and uh comedians typically use them as like a battleground to test new material and stuff but i think a lot of comedians even the great ones go in there and, and like tank you know like really? i've seen really good comedians go in open mic nights and just bomb really like your limos your Husies, like you know people that you would never expect to like bomb and i'm not saying like bomb as in like bomb badly but like for their lofty standards yeah like they don't do it that just well. falls short. it just falls short even even if the material is great it's just because people typically at open mic nights most of the time they don't even want to be there they're just in the bar and they're like what the fuck is this comedy event? Like, why, why are there people doing comedy? Like, where's the live music? You know what I mean? Like, I've done gigs where um, I've been in nightclubs and it's what? been like 1am. Mate, I swear, a nightclub, like 1am and like there's like Will Sparks up there like playing a filthy banger and then they just like stop the music and I go up there and do like fucking 10 minutes of comedy. Oh my God. Not, not um, Will Sparks, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. a DJ playing something and it's like hard and everyone's dancing and drinking. And it's like, Why would I, they do that? That doesn't make know. any sense. I've done some shockers. I've done some shockers. <laughs> I've done, had some great ones as well. Um, but, you know, as I said, I draw that parallel to tennis and comedy. Uh, I said it earlier, but, like, that's 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 the wave that you write. Like, the, the gigs that you do poorly, you know, you, nothing's worse. Like, mm. it's like the matches that you lose where it's a tight match. You're like, that's like, it, you think about it for weeks. But then the gigs that you do that you kill and you do really well, you feel on top of the world. You feel untouchable. So, um, it's one of those crazy roller coaster rides. But... Going back to your question about um, my biggest bomb, I remember it absolutely vividly. It's a crazy story, and I'm looking forward to sharing it on this podcast <laughs> here in URL. Uh, it's going to be it's a hell of a story. Uh, so, so the biggest gig I've ever done was coincidentally also the um, the worst gig I ever did, um, and uh, I got in. Uh, <laughs> I <don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's very tough. The, 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 the scars are still there, but. Um, I got invited to Etihad Stadium to perform stand-up for the AC2 Congress, um, which is like this political party. Um, and uh, it was at Etihad Stadium, 3,000 people, Julia Gillard, Bill Shorten, wow. Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, like the, every bang and whistle you can imagine. Um, and uh, I was actually doing a Tony Abbott impersonation and I was required to do 10 minutes of, of comedy. And uh, when you do um, a gig of this magnitude for a corporate like this, um, it's very typical to go and have meetings to make sure the material isn't overly offensive because I do like a lot of corporate gigs now. It's sort of how I make my money. And um, I'm quite popular in the corporate market because I do a lot of impersonations and it's quite, in their minds, it's quite easy to evoke laughter without the, the swearing and the vulgarity that goes with it. Yeah. So, um, it's it's politically correct. Yeah, pretty much. Well, yeah. 
in a, in a way. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. So uh, just they, you wait. <laughs> they were screening my material, and the, the funny thing is, they actually ticked off on it. But they were like bureaucrats. There was like a table of like ten blokes, and I had like all these crook gags, like, and uh, they were just reading over. And they're like, hmm, yes, hmm, no, hmm, yes, hmm, and then that was like, okay. Um, that's great, Elliot. Like, go ahead and uh, you, you can say this. Uh, this is absolutely fine. We're looking forward to uh, you know sharing the stage with you on this uh, on this day. And I was like, great, mate. That's perfect. He was not British in the slightest, but um, <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, you know, setting the tone. Anyway, so uh, that was that. They ticked off on the material. They were like, great, ten minutes worth of material. I wrote it all uh, specifically for the gig. Uh, turned up and um, I don't know if anyone here listening or yourself have been to the Etihad Stadium function room, but it's uh, a very big room. And uh, when I performed there, um, it was sort of um, the stage was situated in a really strange position. It was on the far um, left hand side of the room when you walk in. Um, and so uh, not facing it's not like at the head of the yeah, room. Yeah, it wasn't like in the middle of the room. It was like it, it's a long sort of. Um, What's that shape where it's like that? Yeah, just like sort of a rectangle. Rectangle, yeah. And that's so it. the door is here. And are you saying they literally had it on the side there? Yeah, man. The, the stage was like in the side of the room. But but to make up for that, they had these big projectors. Oh, my God. And uh, they were like movie-sized projectors. Like this room was massive and this event was huge. So like the 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 the, the um, they were like the size of a movie theater TV screen. And there's probably like 12 or 13 of these big screens on each big pillar, these big um, like uh, stone girders. And so that because the view was obstructed, you could still see my head on each one or whoever was speaking on each one of those projectors. Anyway, so I was so nervous coming into it, but I was excited because um, I felt like I was just hitting my straps as a comedian and I was doing quite well and uh, I felt pretty good. And this was obviously the biggest gig I'd ever been booked for to date. And I went backstage and... um, uh, Bill Shorten went on stage and Julia Gillard went up just before me <laughs> and uh, Julia gave this unbelievable speech right that like you know had a standing ovation like she was w- so well spoken like you know pretty much everyone the 3,000 people that were there were, th- were there for her um, standing ovation people cheering go doggies yeah you know <laughs> and uh, anyway that was pretty much how it went down and uh, then Bill Shorten went back on stage the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra played a little bit of a, a song with the violins and stuff and the cellos and then they're like, right, now we have a special guest and uh, here he is. And the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra struck up the, the violins and stuff like that. And I came out from backstage with a little Afghanistani fighter jet and my ears out, Tony Abbott. Uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, hello, everyone. Uh, uh, you know, and I had this jet and I was like, uh, take that, Iraq. And uh, doing it anyway, crickets, absolute crickets. Really? Crickets, mate, crickets. Like... You could have heard a pin drop in that 3,000 people auditorium. Like, it was just insane. Like, Julia Gillard was just staring at me, like, gnawing on a steak, just, like, looking me dead in the eye. <laughs> Man, like, Jesus. It was, it was brutal anyway. Like, Why do you think they didn't laugh at any of the stuff? So, I'll get to that in just a moment. So, we, we, I was just going through it all, going through it all, like, tank after tank after tank. And the worst part was, man, because I was tanking so hard, I started to get so nervous and shaking. Like, I just... I, the thing is, when I typically do stand-up, because I do have that, um, uh, uh, I'm fortunate that I can do so many different voices. If one voice or one character doesn't work, I just switch on to the next one. And I know that at least one character is going to evoke some form of laughter from the yeah. audience. Whereas I was trapped as Tony Abbott. I was in the suit. I had my ears out. There was nowhere to go, man. Like, I, I just had to ride the wave. I was just like, no, nah, I just have to cop it, you know. Like, So, I just kept hitting it, kept hitting it. 
got nothing, like joke after joke, falling flat, falling flat. And um, because I was so nervous, I started perspiring like so badly. Like there was sweat like pouring down my oh, face. Oh, dude, this is so bad. And they were like zooming in on the on the projectors. So, like everyone could see like the close-up high definition, like 180,000p like on my head, like zoomed in of like the sweat just like beating down my face. Anyway... I got to like the last 30 seconds of the 10 minute material and like people were just like talking over me like it was just like horrendous man and then I was like uh, 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 my name is uh, uh, Tony Abbott and there was like this sigh that started on one side of the auditorium that like carried all the way across to the other side of the auditorium and like I feel like because they didn't know that I was impersonating Tony Abbott and it was so out of context because it nowhere in the itinerary did it say that there was a comedian and they just thought that I was some like weirdo that just like went up there and was trying to I don't know like obviously some people probably would have known Fuck. but when you think about it like it wasn't as obvious as, you, as you'd think um, and uh, you know I still didn't get a laugh but that, that was it uh, I went backstage and I sat there man and it was like the worst feeling like I've ever had in my whole life like I remember sitting there just like rocking back and forth and like I feel this like hand on my shoulder and I'm like whoa, whoa, what the hell and I like, turn around and he's just like some 16 year old busboy and he looks at me and he goes don't worry Elliot Looney mate I still think you're funny <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was like, fuck, man. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, I was like, thanks, man. Thanks, man. But uh, Did that lift your spirits? Well, man, here's here's the thing. So, um, there was, I tried frantically to get out the back door because I was like, I got to get the hell out of here, man. Like, I didn't want to get out. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Um, But unfortunately, there was no back door exit. And the only way to get out, I don't know why, but the only way to get out was to go straight through um, the, the curtains, like, into the actual audience and, like, around the tables to the door. There was, like, no direct out. So, I had to, like, go out and, like, just see all their judgmental faces and, like, just looking at me as I, like, snaked my way through and, like, snuck out the back door, man. And I remember, like, this was in 2015. I went back to my car, man, and, like, um, you know, I can't remember, like, uh, like, I felt like I was okay. And then, like, honestly, man, I started shaking and I just, like, started bawling my eyes out man like uncontrollable crying like really man it was so weird like i've never been in like such a low point like it was so weird like i felt like i was on top of it felt like i was really controlled i was like you know it's not that bad but then like i don't know man like nothing can prepare you for that like nothing can prepare you for that man like i just completely shut off like wow. I, st- I and i don't know how long i was there man but like i just like sat in the car in the car park of eddie had just crying man like uncontrollably crying man well, this sounds similar to what happened when you broke your collarbone. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it was like a real low point. But um, in having said that, man, like it definitely changed me as a person because um, it made me a way better comedian and a much better person as well. Because after that, I not only had more empathy for people who were doing comedy because, you know, I'd go to a night and I'd be the first person to like console someone who's, who's bombed like because I know that feeling, man, better than anyone. Wow. But um, also... Um, it it completely um, changed me as a person as, and as a performer because I knew from that moment on, I was like, there's no gig that I'm going to do that is ever going to be as bad as that. <laughs> <laughs> and man, it was so liberating. Like every gig I did from then on, like... Well, it wasn't like the fucking yeah, ACTU. I, yeah. I, can, I can say like, you know, since 2015, I've done so many more gigs since that night and uh, I've never done a gig anywhere near as bad as that. Have they ever booked you again? No. <laughs> No, but I still got paid, uh, which was unbelievable. For that sort of event, what 
I mean, you probably don't want to talk about numbers, but yeah. is the pay ridiculous for it's, that sort It's of pretty stuff? good, man. It's pretty good. Like back in the day, like I, looking back on it, I should have quoted more for what it was. I didn't realize how ritzy it was and how much money they probably had at their disposal. Mm. Probably underquoted them a little bit, but um, yeah, like it, it, it's good money in the corporate sense. Like most of these guys, you know, um, depending on what functions they do. Like I know um, one of my friends recently said he tried to book um tommy little and he and he ended up booking limo last minute and it was 10 minutes for a end of year christmas party for their um you know whatever company he works for and it was like five and a half grand for 10 minutes wow. it's pretty good so like some wow. of these guys are making good money just doing the rounds doing that wow and so how many corporate events do you reckon you do in a year particularly like during like this christmas yeah season? see this is the thing like coming into the tennis like i'm pretty popular because i do like a lot of uh, tennis related comedy and impersonations and stuff so i typically can get booked a bit to do that stuff especially when there there's people entertaining clients at the um at melbourne park at the tennis center but um you know it's not as glamorous as people think um doing the corporate scene because sometimes I'll do, you know, heaps of gigs and I'll make like really good money in like a week, but then there's just nothing for like a month. Mm. So like um, there's no um, consistency there, which can make it a little bit tough. Yeah. Well, it's, it's one of the many things that you would be doing to be making that yeah. coin. Yeah. Now, going to that point about what defines your style and what do you think you are? Are you an impersonator? Are you an actor? Are you a comedian? Do you have that idea in your mind as to what you are? Yeah, man, I think uh, what I've come to find is like, uh, you know, there's, there's guys out there that absolutely love stand-up. Like, Lewis is a prime example of that, man. Like, Lewis knows what he wants to do and it's stand-up comedy and he loves it more than anything else. I have a whole bunch of different interests, you know what I mean? Like, um, he's um, very singular in what he wants to do and what he loves. I feel like because I have so much love for sport and, and obviously I love comedy, but I've got like external interests away from um, comedy. And I think what I've come to find is it's probably why I've been putting so much time and effort into my animation because um, in a perfect world, I aspire to be someone like Seth MacFarlane or, <laughs> um, you know, um, Matt Groening, you know, like I, I think... Um, I have a real natural aptitude for voices and impersonations and character development and character acting. And I think if I can um, use um, the, my animation as a vehicle to um, propel me forward, that's in a perfect world where I'd like to go. Mm. I'd really like to be that that um, Australia's um, Matt Groening, I guess, in a perfect world. That's so yeah. funny. Yeah. I, I've, I've thought a lot. I mean, we, we spoke maybe, God, it would have been like 2017 or yeah. the start of last year about the the comic i know or the the cartoon rather yep. i know a lot of people have asked you questions when you post it up on instagram yeah so this is probably the biggest project you've undertaken right yeah without doubt yeah. yeah um and and another thing that i didn't realize about animation is like just how time consuming and how unbelievably expensive it is oh man like it's it's unbelievable like you know even trying to get 22 minutes together like i went to an animation studio they quoted me like 275 grand oh for my 22 God. like it's and that's just like industry standard you know it's 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 insane but it's so frustrating for me because i know that it's something that's going to take off and i've just got absolutely no doubt in my mind that like there's a huge hole in the market for it and like you know if someone came along and decided to take that risk i'm so confident that like it would pay off in some regard mm. um but it's so hard to even find someone with that kind of disposable income and then to convince them to put something you know <laughs> that hasn't been proven you know it's so difficult what's um where did this idea come from like how did um, how did it come about 
Oh, like, what what is it? Like there'll be people who are listening to this and they have no idea what the prestigious yeah. nine ace is. So basically, the concept of it it's about this um, brazen nine ace sports coach that goes to ridiculous ridiculous links to recruit professional athletes to come and play for this junior nine a football team. But um, recently, since I've got an investor on board to help me with this, um, well, I shouldn't say investor. He's more more of a partner. We've actually just um, applied for a Screen Australia grant. Oh wow! Um, and that took that's a quite a lengthy and time consuming process. So we're actually really um, we're sweating at the moment. We've got our fingers firmly crossed and hoping for um, some money to come through for, from Screen Australia in the next uh, week or so. We'll probably hear back and find out. That would out. be amazing because they've started doing some stuff with like Superwog yeah. and uh, I think a few of the other comedians have been pitching them recently or they've, they've asked them to pitch. Without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, yeah. it would be it would be life-changing for me and, um, you know, that's something that I really, really hope that they, they take into account um, that, you know, it's it's I hope that they can see the potential in it like we can. Um but uh, but yeah, that's basically what it is in a nutshell. It's it's changed a little bit. Um, it's going to be more multi-sport and multifaceted now because I think um, from uh, my business partner's perspective, he probably thought that although AFL is so popular here in in Melbourne and in, in you know Perth and Adelaide in particular, it probably won't resonate with a worldwide audience as much as if it was a multi-sport, multi-multifaceted cartoon, which is something that I really wanted to do long term. But I didn't expect that we'd be developing it and and. Uh, changing it this early yeah how who inspired mr parker so many people ask that question and uh honestly it was as simple as like uh i just loved creating voices and like ridiculous characters and it's like my favorite thing to do and like the filters came on snapchat and like i remember seeing the mr parker filter and being like man that's just mr parker like just straight away like i don't know it's all it all sort of came to me like magic man like i was just like that's wallace sterling that's mr parker that's gavin and then like they all started mr you know all these new characters like mr davis and um you know poppy sterling and all these new characters like i've got a huge booklet with like all these you know it's thick it's all these I would have loved to have seen that I should have got you to bring it yeah I should have brought it along I've brought got it, it I've, I've got it on my phone um, but uh, it's currently filming so who drew the first script sketches yeah. so um, it was actually uh, a, a weird sort of um, uh, coincidence so I was doing a bit of personal training on the side at the time when I was um, coming up with all this stuff and I was training this um, plastic surgeon called David, who was an absolutely cracking bloke. And occasionally he'd bring his son in, who was um, just uh, like a first year uni student at the time. And uh, he was studying animation. And, uh, you know, he'd been following the, 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 um, the nine A's, I think, at the time. And I told him about it. And uh, at this point, I actually didn't know that he was doing animation. And then he told me, he's like, I'm actually doing animation. And I was like, whoa, man, like, that's crazy. Cause like, I want to turn this thing into an animation. And then I think um, a little bit of time passed. And then I found out that he had to do like an end of year assessment, um, for, like a four minute video um, where he was getting assessed in uni. And uh, that's unreal. So he said, look, I need to do this video anyway. And I was like, man, that's sick. I've written this script for this pilot or this teaser. Um, if you animate it, I'll do all the voices and I'll get all the sound engineering done like free of charge for you. And so I think I paid like a, a few grand for a sound engineer and I paid him some money under the table. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Sam. Um, and uh, and, and that, that was, I was so fortunate to have that um, for, for like a very, um, uh, yeah, uh, mate's race price. Because, yeah. you know, if I'd done that, if I'd actually uh, used anyone other than Sam, you know, I would have been out of pocket, you know, 30, 40 grand, you know, easy. So, so what are your options now? It's basically 
Get a grant through something like Screen yeah. Australia. So, it's either... Raise it through Patreon? Pretty much. So, either like a hopefully crowdfunding. I feel like I've missed that boat. I, um, you know, I probably should have um, done the crowdfund when I had all that hype from the actual teaser. I think I missed that a little bit. Like the only way for me to go back to my audience and get that crowdfund would be, I think if I had the opportunity to make more episode animation episodes because then I could use that hype to do it again. Mm. Um, but yeah, typically we're just waiting for a Screen Australia to get back to us. Um, I'm really hopeful that they do. Um, and in failing that, my only other option would be to, um, with my partner now, to put together an investment consortium and hopefully get some money in there and that would be the only other way. And Otherwise, what would you do? Fold. Would you do like a, a pilot? Would you do a series if you were to raise that money? Uh, yeah, so I think our idea is to do six four-minute episodes um, and put them online with like maybe a sponsor, um, whether it's like a Telstra, an Optus, whatever. Um, and then hopefully that will lead to um, a longer form, um, you know, sort of 22-minute streaming on Netflix or Stan or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like uh, four-minute episodes, each covering a different sport, Um but, you know, all 9As. It's of one of those crazy things here in Australia where we've sort of got this unrivaled talent, but it's not being utilised. It's tough, you know man. I mean? It's a tough industry, man. Like, honestly, like, um, yeah, I'm close to breaking point, man. Like, I, I feel like I've been, like, chipping away at this for so long. Like, you know, if if, if, if I don't get this funding from Screen Australia to do this animation, like, and, and I can't raise capital um, some other way for this animation, like, I'm going to seriously consider, like, doing something else next year, hey, like... Mm. I'm actually at that point where, like, you know, I know that I've, I've got this um, unique skill set, but it's it's so hard in Australia, as you said, man. It's a very tough landscape, especially here. The industry is so small. There's not enough money to, you know, um, people aren't as, as uh, brazen in terms of taking risks <laughs> as they are here, um, as they are probably sorry in America. A hundred percent. So yeah, it, it's 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 a tough landscape, man. But hopefully, um, you know, my the stars will align and my luck will change this year. Hopefully, well, the thing that you should consider. If if you can't get it going is maybe just doing really short form and using uh, like animators on Upwork in some yeah. way. Yeah, like that, go, that, to, that, go, go to a uni or something even. Well, you could do uni. You, it could just be like Upwork as, is one of these platforms where you, you can hire freelancers. Yeah. Um, and depending on the range that you're willing to pay, you can probably get someone for it. Yeah. But I think the hardest thing, man, is like getting the, the, the quality like I'm going to 100% it's like you know yeah. that's the thing about Sam like I was so fortunate with Sam because not only did he do it like for mates rates and stuff but he's so talented man like he's he's a jet like mm. I was so lucky to find him and and have him do that. like we just mentally synergize so well like I'd go in there and say like yeah can we can you draw it like this and I'd explain how I want it drawn and uh, dr- drawn and then he would literally draw it exactly how I'd imagined it it in was just head, crazy yeah. man like there was no point where I was like no nah, that's not what like it just it was I've never had a working relationship that just flowed so well yeah I think that's one of the lucky things Lauren and I have had yeah. where because she's got that design background yeah and she'll be able to craft that th- I'm like I've got this in my head what have you ever thought about partnering with him on it or is it saying yeah that he- absolutely I think um from his perspective I think he's um 
you know, I don't want to speak uh, out of tongue here, but yeah, I think he's a little bit burnt out from animation personally. Right. He's, um, you know, been doing it for so long now and he's got his own project that he's working on. He's actually working on a video game. Um, really? Yeah, he's working on a video game and he's coding it himself and he's looking for like a third party investment. He's looking for government grants on that as well. So he's been working flat out on that. And I've seen the work he's been doing, man. He's, he's so creative. Like it's kind of like an RPG. It's kind of like Zelda or really? um, like, I don't know if you ever played PlayStation 1 back in the day, if you ever had fortunate enough to play a game called Alundra but it's never played it a great game but uh, it's kind of like that um, you know that uh, um, what do you call it when it's like a sky view um, yeah, the, what, what you said before, like a... Um, it's an RPG, but yeah. it's like a... It's not like side-scrolling, it's like a... It's like third person. Yeah, it's like a Zelda on the Game Boy or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like know? sort of um, Fortnite. Yeah, kind of yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 more so just um, like top-down. That's what it is, top-down. Ah. Yeah, so it's what's, like... What's the name of his game called? Um, Ocean Sider or something like that, I think. I can't remember. I'm not right. 100% sure, but it's like... Um, yeah, it's very similar to that of like Zelda, and um, yeah, he's he's done so much work on it, man. So I hope I hope he does well. Like he's uh, he's super talented. So I'd be disappointed if he didn't get a run. What is the business model of Elliot Loney? You know, how do you? <laughs> what are the different things that you do to like so, for someone who's a comedian, impersonator, actor? Yeah. What is it that makes you money? Because it's quite different yeah. to a lot of the other guys, where it's just like it all culminates in a show at the end of the year. Yeah. See, that's the thing. Like, um, you know, a lot of people ask me why. Like, I haven't done the comedy festival for a while, and you know, you look at guys like Lewis and Luke and Frenchie and Shooter and stuff. You know, they do a new show every year. But I've been, um, you know, able to make enough money to support myself just from doing like corporates and stuff like that, even though it doesn't. Um, you know, um, it's not consistent. Mm. I still end up making pretty decent money from just doing corporates every now and then. But the issue is, as I said earlier, it's, it's sort of, um, you know, when it rains, it pours, you know. So, sometimes you're, you're making great money and everything's good and, um, you know, you're doing like uh, four gigs in a weekend and then you just got nothing, you know. <laughs> so, for it's just, you know, it's so unpredictable, which is why um, I'm trying so hard to, I've, you know, I've started my own um, production company with my business partner, um for the animation and that's why I'm so hopeful that this year I get a chance to work on that because I feel like that would really be a great leverage point for me to um, uh, commercialize um, myself and get into other um, you know other spaces and um, more uh, opportunities in that in that industry in the mainstream market I think yeah even you- if it's like being a presenter on the project or something you know what I mean but you need like something um, to, to get there and I feel like um, you know the nine A's for me um, that's that's sort of my model. That's like my hope is yeah. um, a lot of people focus on themselves. Like, um, you know, it's a perfect example. Like, um, you know, Lewis is focusing on building himself as the brand. And so, like, he's doing, like, his YouTube videos and his stand-up and he's like, oh, I'm Lewis Spears, you know, like, that's it. Um, whereas, like, I'm sort of um, the opposite to that where, like, I'm still trying to build my own brand, I guess, in my own way. But I'm more so just thinking, like, I want to create this vehicle. Like, I want to create something that's much bigger than myself. Like, I mm. want the 9As to be, like, way bigger than Elliot Loney. And then hopefully it takes off and then everyone will be like, that show is sick and that's the guy. Yeah, so, guy, you know, like, I'm very happy with that to be... You know how it is. I'd almost prefer that to take all the fame, and then I can just be the guy that no one recognises, but still goes to the red carpets. You know, that's interesting. So <laughs> yeah. you prefer being not being the front man and having something. Yeah, I think like I think that would be yeah, in my perfect world. Like uh, you know, I think I've seen you know because I do have like those, those guys you mentioned before, like. 
um, those tennis uh, guys that I'm good mates with, like Kyrgios and Thanasi and stuff. And like, you know, I've seen like what fame, how, how difficult fame can be to manage sometimes. And I think for me personally, like I'm not sure if I'm ready or if I want it. So I think, um, you know, um, that's the beautiful thing of having something that that's yours that that people love. I mean, like you know, Matt Groening and Seth MacFarlane. I mean, they're really famous, but I don't know if I could point them out in the street. Um, well, most people couldn't. Yeah, so that's sort of why I, I I'm really I really like that idea of um of of being like that. I think that would be in my in my head like that's that's like my dream, like yeah. just being able to have all the perks of fame, but none of the none of the cons sort of thing. Before we get into some uh, shorter, faster questions, I, yeah. I, the last thing I wanted to ask you was about sort of this flow state you seem to get into. Like last night, we were chatting over Messenger. You know, you're riffing on certain things. You're also on your your story, your Instagram stories, answering questions and stuff like that. You you and you can sort of see that when you're getting into character yeah. as well. Yeah. You sort of get into this flow state. Is there mm. anything you do or what do you do to make yourself get into that? Like, particularly when you're impersonating a character, like how do you embody all of that? Um, yeah, so I think like with the impersonations and stuff like that, like uh, like I, I actually don't put enough work into it, I don't think. Like I just... Really? I just yeah, I just use the fact that I, I have a good ear and I've got that natural aptitude for impersonations and I just... I, I, I abuse that. I think there's a lot of impersonators out there that really put the work in. Like I'm, man, I'm like the curiosity of impersonations. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't try, man. Like I just don't. I don't really like. It's just kind of. It just comes to me. But when I do want to knuckle down and when I do want to put the effort in, um, you know, like I actually notice that I, I do the impersonation like a lot better. So that's something that I really want to try and do in 2019. Like, uh, you know. Um, listen to it more so like say for example like if I do an impersonation of Morgan Freeman right now and then I watch a video of Morgan Freeman then I do it again it's going to be 10 times better because mm. I've got it fresh in my mind and you know I, I pick up on the little nuances and stuff like that okay yeah that's interesting so um, yeah one of the things that I do typically and I think a lot of impersonators probably don't do is um, instead of just listening to the sound of the voice like I look at the, um, the way that their mouth moves and the way that they actually um, sound out the words and stuff like that. Because yeah. I think if you can't match the way that their mouth moves or the way that they dictate, then you're not going to be able to do the impersonation well. Yeah, and also so, they're sort of the way that they hold themselves. It definitely helps, man. So, like, with all my impersonations, I try to, like, I just close my eyes for a bit and I think about them, you know, like I become them, I try to embody them. So, rather than just, you know, I'm going to do an impersonation of this, like, I think, like, I am Rafa, you know what I mean? Like that's sort wow, of that yeah, must like, be intense, it's weird, huh? man. Sometimes like it's I'm probably autistic or some shit. Like sometimes I see like like I see it like you know even when I've got my eyes open like I can see them speaking in my head. It's really weird. yeah, it's weird, man. That's yeah. very interesting. But I guess you would have to do that if you want to become that character. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. So that's why like you know even with character acting, like I wouldn't say I don't think I've never had an acting lesson, so I actually don't know. But I don't think that I'm a good actor. But I do know for certain that I'm. I, I feel incredibly comfortable as a character, and I feel um, a lot more comfortable acting when I am in a character as opposed to doing myself. Like that's for sure. Mm. Yeah. All right, short, fast questions to finish you off. All right, man, I suck at these. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what does your morning routine look like? Um, uh, not great, man. <laughs> <laughs> what, what time do you normally wake up? Uh, depends on the day, depends yeah. on the week, and depends on my schedule. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what about evening? What does that normally look like? Uh, again, 
depends on the week, depends on the day, depends on the schedule. Like if I'm if I'm doing the animation and stuff like that, and I've got a nine to five, I'm doing nine to five. But if there's nothing on and I'm and I've got no gigs and stuff, man, I could be in a dark place. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what does your typical week look like if you were to average it out over a year? Oh, you know, like every single day I go to the gym, you know, yep. so I, I always have that some time for that. Um, you know, if I'm feeling a bit of inspiration, I'll do some writing. Um, if I've got to prepare for a gig, you know, I'll have to prepare for the gig. I mean, that's one of the other things that you've got to factor in. Like when you do a corporate, um, sorry, I know these questions are supposed to be fast, <laughs> but when you do a corporate gig, um, you know, a lot of the time they just think that your material sort of suited, but uh, like or already written, sorry, rather, and you just rock up and do it. But a lot of the times they want it um, written specifically for the company or for the gig. So oh that's God. that's a lot of time to not only write it, um, learn all the in-jokes, learn the names of some of the people that are there, but then you've got to um, learn it off by heart. So, you know, that's one of the things that I do. So I write it down and what I'd normally do is I record it to my um, my uh, phone and then when I go to the gym or do something else, you I listen, to, listen it. to it over and over and over again, man. Yeah, wow. it's so tedious because like when I'm at the gym, there's nothing more I want than just listening to music to get me through. But I'm just listening to myself fucking do Morgan Freeman, and The Joker and Dr. Phil and fucking... Fuck like, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> All right, your exercise routine, what does that look like? Uh, so I do sort of legs, shoulders, back buys, chest tries, and I do like a day uh, and I try and do like a run at least 10 minutes on the treadmill, whether it's interval or something. Um, in the summer, like I'll play tennis on top of that, um, you know, most days of the week. And uh, yeah, and uh, there's normally a day off. So I do like a probably six days a week I go and then my day off, I'll do like a long run. Okay. Like run like 10K or something ridiculous like that. Fuck. Stupid, yeah. Um, we just passed Christmas. Yeah. If you had to gift a book to the audience, just one book, yep. what would it be? Uh, I probably don't read that many books. And when I do, I get halfway through. <laughs> um, one of the books I did read is Open, Agassiz Open. Great book if you're All into right. tennis. It's, and it's a very interesting insight into Andre Agassiz's life. Um, and then recently I read another autobiography. I, I like my autobiographies uh, with Michael Caine. Uh, <laughs> cracking book. Michael Caine. Michael Caine. <laughs> But man, stop waiting. Yeah, so yeah, great, great book, great book. Um, and he's 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 a very inspirational dude. So get around that. Okay. Uh, when you think of success, who or what first comes to mind? Roger Federer. Yeah, he's my hero, man. I, I love the guy. Yeah, I absolutely <laughs> love him. I, I think a lot of people. I don't know anyone who can really hate that man. <laughs> Mate, he's a You've god. got to be a pretty evil person to hate that guy. He is a god, man. <laughs> like, uh, I met him for the first time in Montreal this year, um, and uh, uh, he I, I didn't know at the time, but he'd seen a few of my Rafa gags. And, uh, That's right. You were telling me about yeah, this Man, night. it was crazy. Like... I heard, I heard like all the cameras are clicking and stuff and he was coming up the stairs and it was a really narrow staircase in Canada in Montreal. It was at the Rogers Cup and I moved out of the way so that he could pass and I put my head down. I was like, holy shit, it's fucking Roger, man. Holy shit, holy shit. You know, like I had posters of that guy on my wall when I was a kid, you know, full <laughs> idolized him. And then I like looked up because I realized that I looked down in his like pristine Nike shoes and I realized he just wasn't moving and I was like, holy shit, he's like standing there and stuff. And I like looked up and he was just looking right at me and he's like, hey man, it's good to see you again and like full shook my hand and like walked off and I was just like never washing <laughs> I was pretty sick man like what uh, so where had you where had you met him I'd met him once before um, at the Australian Open earlier in the year um, through Thanasi because Thanasi is pretty good mates with him actually Thanasi beat right. him um, recently that's right um, in Miami and uh, yeah he was there and I got a flick with him got a selfie with him and I told him he's the goat and I think he was 
quietly chuffed with that, but um, I didn't realize at the time, but I'd actually filmed some stuff with Belinda Bencic, who is like this, um, another uh, tennis player from the same country. And, um, and uh, Belinda had showed him, I think, a few of my Rafa videos and stuff like that. And I think he'd had a good laugh. So, so he did recognize me. Just on, before we finish this off, just tell us about the thing where you were flown over to Canada. Yeah. Man, Rafa. Crazy. So I did a video of Rafa Nadal and uh, it got picked up by Unilad and Unilad shared it. And then a lady from Tennis Canada contacted me and said, hey, how would you like to come over and like, you know, interview the stars at Rogers Cup? That's right. Yeah. And I was like, fucking oath. And she um, ended up uh, paying for my flights to go over there. And I stayed, uh, paid for my accommodation, paid me to do it. It was honestly the best experience of my whole life. They paid for everything? Everything. And um, uh, even my mate came over with me. He had some time off work. So, he decided to come with me, one of my mates, James Scully. And we spent some time in Montreal on the Rogers Cup. And so, I was just with my mates like Reedy and Kyrgios and him. And we every night, like we'd just hang out and um, have fun and then... You know, they were obviously playing the tournament as well. And then I was doing gags with the players and contracted to do that. So that was heaps of fun. And then um, we hired a car and we drove from uh, Montreal to um, across the border into the US. Spent some time in the US, went to the US Open and um, stayed with Anasi and Nick and just had a sweet time over there, man. It was an unbelievable life. And, wow. you know, I hung out with Jeannie Bouchard and partied with like, you know, the big dogs. And it was just, man, it was like, it was one of the unforgettable experience. And, um, did you, you know, meet Rafa? Have you met him? Yeah. So when I was in Canada, it's actually quite a funny story. I was in Canada and um, the TVA Sports, which is like, I guess, the equivalent of Channel 9 here, were like um, waiting to do interviews and I was doing stuff for Tennis Canada. So I was playing this game of charades where like I would hold up this iPad and the players that I was interviewing um, would, would act out whatever was written on the iPad and then I had to guess. And so I'd done some with Gregor Dimitrov. I did some with Joe Wilford Songer and I'd done some with a couple of other big name players. And so I was just expecting that Rafa was there to do one with me. And he walked over and stood in front of me and I was like, uh, get it, Rafa, how are you, mate? Yeah, good, you see, mate. Like, trying to play it cool, you know? <laughs> and he says, ah, hello, very good to see you. Fantastic for me. I want to say hello. And, like, he was just being really nice. And then um, <laughs> I was standing there and then um, this tennis, uh, the, well, the TVA sports guy came over. He's like, hey, man, like, what are you doing with Rafa? Like, Rafa, like we're doing an interview with Rafa. Like, what? We, you can't do an interview with Rafa. And I was like, oh, sorry, man. He, like, took Rafa by the wrist. And Rafa was like, oh, I'm, I'm very sorry, guy. I am sorry, hey. I didn't. Like he apologized to me and stuff, and I was fuck? like, "It's all good, Rafa. Don't worry about it, brother. Like, don't worry about it, mate. Next time, next time." But um, yeah, there's actually a video on my Instagram page. That's what I was talking yeah, about. Yeah, you can see it um, because um, I found out through some of my mutual friends on the tour that he has seen a few of the Rafa gags, like Uncle Tony and stuff. Had have watched it with Rafa, and he's had a bit of a chuckle at it. So uh. I know that he's seen it. So it was quite funny when I was on the practice court with Kyrgios and Dimitrov and my mate James Scully. Uh, we were on the court, and he walked on to the practice court next door you can see it on my instagram um elliot underscore loney uh feel free to give it a follow if you want um but uh <laughs> he actually walks onto the court and i make eye contact with rafa and i think he recognized me immediately and gave me a little smile because i was wearing the pink shirt that i always wear in the gags so he definitely saw it and just thought to himself oh no it's that guy that's so, so funny dude yeah that's so funny yeah. look this has been it, i'm so glad that we finally got you in yeah man it's been I'm, great i'm yeah it's it's funny how long it you know, I was messaging you and whatnot, and I'm glad you've come in. And I think what you're doing with the 9As is very interesting. Thanks, man. I think um, people should definitely be following what you're doing. And I hope that at least over the next year, we can see some progress and things. And if it doesn't work out, I, I would implore you to consider doing small 
gags. Like we just interviewed the Stepmates TV guys. Yeah, those guys are doing well at the moment, um, aren't they? And I just think that you know, if you did some small stuff there, it could could be very interesting. But anyway, thank you for coming in. Where can people find you on the interwebs what's the yeah, best yeah no worries so uh it's elliot uh loney e-l-l-i-o-t-l-o-n-e-y on youtube um e underscore loney on twitter perfect timing <laughs> light just goes out <laughs> elliot underscore loney on instagram and i'm um, pretty much pretty sure that's that's basically the bulk of it awesome yeah look thanks so much for coming in no worries jordan it was a pleasure cheers thanks mate thank you for making it this far Before you run off, we have a quick ask for you. Subscribe on your podcast app. Subscribing will give you priority access and help your fellow-minded listeners find Uncommon. Or you could also share with a friend. This will go a long way in building our audience, which will help us both get further guests on the show. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Neural, which is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E. But until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Neural Media is an effortless and affordable content production service. We help businesses save time and money by taking away the pain of producing content. If you want to grow your audience through content production, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash media. Create a quote and request a callback from me personally. If you want to learn more about the benefits of growing your audience, download our free series on how to create content at the bottom of neural.com slash media. Listeners to this podcast receive a special 10% discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON.